Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Journal of Asian American Studies. I am your host, Chris Patterson, speaking to you from the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people here on the University of British Columbia campus. This episode is the third of a four-part series featuring the winners and honorable mentions of the 2021 Book Awards for the Association of Asian American Studies. Since 1987, the Book Awards at the annual Asian American Studies Association Conference, or AAAS, has given valuable attention onto the works in Asian American studies that have been leading the field and have spotlighted works that seek to generatively disrupt, challenge, or undo the norms of Asian American studies, keeping the field dynamic in its ideas, animated in its possible uses, and broadly effective in its possible impacts to educators, organizers, and the general public. With our last two episodes focused on the book awards in social sciences, literary studies, and poetry, this episode focuses specifically on the winners in creative writing prose. Past winners in these categories include work like Jessica Hagedorn's Dog Eaters, Monique Trung's The Book of Salt, Ruth Ozeki's A Tale for the Time Being, Viet Nguyen's The Sympathizer, and Karen Te Yamashita's I Hotel and Letters to Memory. This year, the winners we talked to challenge our conceptions of diaspora, migration, and national belonging, urging us to question the fidelity of Asian American identity to American imperial and economic interests. First, we will begin with our interview with Xuan Juliana Wang, whose collection Home Remedies explores the new generation of Chinese diasporic wanderers. Our second interview will be with Rico Villanueva Shasoko whose collection, The Foley Artist, provides a new treatment of queer Filipinx diasporic lives. To begin each interview, I will be reading from the rationales written by the award committees. 
As we will often discuss racial, gendered, and sexual violence, please remain mindful of where our discussions are going and take care. I feel like in Hollywood, they they have the advantage of being more direct. So, so they keep telling me nobody cares about a half Chinese American experiencing things in China. Like that's not an, that's not something American audiences are interested in. Either you're American who goes to China, or you're a Chinese person who comes to America. But this in between world place that you're exploring is confusing, and nobody cares. Now, that's what the studio executives have told me. I'm here with Xuan Juliana Wang, who was born in Heilongjiang, China, and moved to Los Angeles when she was seven years old. She was a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University and received her MFA from Columbia University. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Plowshares, The Best American Non-Required Reading, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. Her first book, Home Remedies, is a collection of stories that, as the award committee wrote, quote, follows a new generation of Chinese diasporic wanderers. Refusing to simply capture these characters through a humanitarian lens, Wong's stories leave impressions that stick through image, scene, sentence, and feeling. These elements are generated by the new generation, traced sometimes as a lost generation of Fu Ar Dai, who huddle inside a Starbucks, though they dislike coffee, and sometimes as an underground generation of Bei Piao, who quench their thirst through the two rivers of politics and art. The stories in Home Remedies are as smart as they are silly, as restrained as they are wild. Each holds a unique mood and atmosphere enhanced by peripatetic movements across cities, buildings, and homes. Each is a genre to itself, from the eclectic days of being mild to the fable-like white tigers of the West. Reminiscent of debut collections like Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies, Yi Yuan Li's A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, and Nam Lei's The Boat, Wang's stories are technically sharp and witty impressions of a diaspora that has come to characterize a new moment of Trans-Pacific reimagining. Specifically, Wang's stories shed light on younger Chinese migrant populations alongside the mysterious prejudices against them that have replicated over time and returned in 2020. As with Lahiri, Li, and Lei, Wang treats her subjects with a wide landscape of feelings, desires, and dreams. Even as they bolt from metal venues to queer discos to shopping malls to la-la bars. The book's transnational scope provides an emerging and important view of Asian America, one that decenters the United States to offer profound insights on the multiple meanings of American for our increasingly transnational and transpacific world. And now to the interview. Hello, Xuan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here and congrats on winning the AAAS Book Award. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor. Um, So I believe you've prepared a short reading of your work. Uh, Do you mind reading it now? Yes. Um, I, I want to read an excerpt from the story Algorithmic Problem Solving for Father Daughter Relationships. Um, I'm just going to skip to the point in the middle of the story. It's uh, after a father has a fight with his teenage daughter and she has stormed out of the house. At one point in the past, I thought I had all the answers already. It happened before I moved to America, before marriage, before the daughter, before I even attended college. It was the summer I hitched a train to Guangzhou, then bought the cheapest ticket to Hainan. 
I was 18 years old with a shaved head and 20 yuan in my pocket, and I just wanted to see the ocean, to float above the water and see the sand below. I still remember it now, the water reflecting a million perfectly placed petals, lifting up to meet the moon. Those birds that lined the trees like big white fruit who transformed back into birds when I approached them and flew away to become clouds. Those clouds reaching down to meet the sea, like a lock of wet hair on a girl's neck. It was then that I realized that the reflection of the water in the sand looked like electricity in a light bulb, like the mysterious maps of marble. I thought I knew the answer to a question I hadn't even asked that there was some order in this universe. Life happened so quickly. My hair thinned and I developed the pouch. The years melted and quickly pooled at my feet. Before I was at all prepared, I was married to an ambitious woman with a precocious daughter, giving up my professorship and moving to New Jersey to become another immigrant American, living an ordinary immigrant life. Now that I think about it, those years were like watching a sunrise. It was not at all like the pleasant vision I had in mind. It was too much to fathom. The great sun peering out from the distance, warm and comforting for a moment, and then brilliant, too brilliant to bear. The soft halo of light quickly became a flare, and it stung. And yet, by the time I learned to turn away, most of my life was over. Some nights I wake up in a panic and wonder, why did everything I worked so hard for turn into something I despised? How did I become an old man? How did I end up with no one? I'll stop there. I'm so glad you read from that um, story. If if I was to like ask you to read one piece from the collection, it might have been that one. Oh, great. Um, and I think it, it's partially because I know that that piece could be very well taught in our mm -hmm. Asian American studies classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but can you talk a bit about what inspired that work? Um, you know, why is it called algorithmic? <laughs> sure. Um, th this... This story I loved writing. I wrote this story while I was getting my MFA at Columbia. I thought I would take some computer science classes in the undergrad the department because so, so many people in my family are either mechanical engineers or computer engineers. And I thought I might have been like a genius that was just <laughs> untapped. So I took these computer science classes and I was doing terribly. I couldn't, I didn't know how to code. And I couldn't figure out how to write the, um, write, you know, write formulas. But I love the textbook. I love the way it spoke to me. I love the tone of it because I felt like it was very, it brought back these like familiar tone of like my cousins and my dad and my uncles, the way they speak. And I wrote this story using a lot of the parts of the intro to computer science textbook. So that's why it's called algorithmic problem solving. In it, there I was trying to write very simple code to solve the problem of father-daughter relationships. I, I feel that this story is very close to me, and um, I actually get a lot of emails from pe readers, like usually um, readers in high school or college, who are very um, empathized or resonated with it. So it's one of my favorites now. And just to give the listeners a bit of... Um... An impression of just the kind of time and reflections that these that are in these stories. This one was published in 2015. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. And I think several of them were published in like around that time. Yes. 
Um, so you've been living with them in, for quite a while. Um, yes. I don't know if you want to say anything about that uh, that process, um, because a lot of folks, you know, they come to these stories not knowing just how much right. went to every word and, you know, right. um, how, how some of these are, you know, five or even a decade old in some cases, mm-hmm. and, uh, at least not, maybe not in this book, but in the typical short story yes. collection. Yes. Uh, yes. In this book, for sure. There's some stories that are, you know, 15 years old. Um I published a version of the story in 2015, but I felt like it wasn't done. Actually, I added a, an ending to it. For me, this um, I often say that this collection took all of my 20s to write because, and um, you know, it's broken up into sections based on um, whatever obsessions I was having at that time. So, you know, the earlier part was um, my questions and problems about family, and the middle section is about love and the Last section is about time and space, so more philosophical conundrums I was dealing with. And this one actually comes from the, the last section. In terms of writing a short story collection, I, I, I guess I'll just speak very honestly. Um, I didn't really think that I could have a collection published. I was working on a novel this whole time. But short stories are my, I, I just love, I love them. I love the way that you can have a whole life in 15 pages. I think there's a kind of magic and I feel very lucky every time I'm in the middle of one. And in publishing these individual stories, I actually, I often get stories placed and then take them back because I feel like I'm not exactly done. I feel like maybe in a year I'll have the finishing touch on them. But, you know, in trying to establish a writing career, I also felt like oh, I need to publish regularly. So it was with great reluctance every time I released one out into the world. Um, when putting together the final, um, the final book, there was a lot of published stories that I actually didn't include because I thought the voices were too similar or I had another story kind of on the same theme. So in the end, you know, these are the ones that I felt like were my favorite. And before um, releasing them out into the world, I, I added either um, this, this one, I made the biggest change, I think, to right before I published it by adding an ending, which I think, I don't know if redeem is the right word, but it definitely, um, it's, um, you know, I think of this particular story told from the perspective of the father, um, because there's, very few stories. I th- this story definitely exists in many forms from the perspective perspective of the daughter, but I I wanted to write this in the perspective of the father and maybe give him a redemption in the end. I, I think it helps um, in writing it. It was a bomb for me in my relationship with my father, and I and I hope that it it does. That. I I have a feeling that it could do the same for uh, many young readers. Well, let's talk a bit about that, um, the, the whole period, I guess, of your 20s in that mm-hmm. case, when you were writing this, Yes. Um, and all the different influences yes. that were going into it, both, you know, real life and, and literary, mm-hmm. well, literary is real life. Um, but one thing that struck me reading the book, and I don't know how your end of things would see this uh, conundrum that mm-hmm. I see in, in um, Asian American literature, but mm-hmm. specifically in like Chinese American literature, mm-hmm. I noticed where there's quite a split between the, the literatures that we teach in, in, in literature classes and Asian American literature classes, and then the um, people who are quite well known and le- who go to like literary festivals. Mm-hmm. And like, so like, I don't, I've never seen like Yi Yun Lee's work yeah. in like in an Asian American studies class. Interesting. Or very rarely. Um, 
Hajin sometimes. Right. Uh, but like Alexander Chi, you see every now and then. Yes. Um, but the the, the 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 scholarship world and the, the literature they focus on is quite different. Um, and so when I was reading this book, I was like, okay, I definitely see those like influences of Hajin and and mm-hmm. folks like that in here. But then there's also I, I saw like Maxine Hong Kingston. I saw other, you know, I saw like a, an interesting convergence. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how how much of that was actually going in um, consciously to the work, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I read it, I was like, I do not want to, I, I do not want this book to be ignored by scholars in a way that, I, I don't want to say ignore that scholars right. don't ignore this other work, but that it seems like I don't want this to be part of that split in the same way um, that it feels like that literature is often divided right. along cool. some line. I don't know what it is, but yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel, I felt this was one of, this award meant so much to me because I felt so seen. <laughs> I felt so, um, I think, you know, in marketing this book, I, I do feel like, especially the UK edition, it makes it seem like it should be a beach read. You know, it's, it was always, um, I don't know if people just, you know, maybe it's the cover or something. It's just, I don't know. If, um, I liked your question. I said, what kind of Chinese, uh, Asian American literature this book is in communication with? And I'm not really sure. Um, I don't, you know, as somebody who, teaches an Asian American literature course. Um, uh, I teach an Asian American literature seminar. I find myself selecting stories that I just felt like moved me in some way. Stories uh, or um, novels or um, collections that I felt like something was on the line for the writer, like it really hurt them or it really, um, it cost them something to write it. In term, that's like my literary uh, background, but in terms of my life, like I think I was just kind of, um, like you said, like I, I lived in Beijing and I was just acting, you know, I didn't really have any responsibilities. I lived in Paris for a while, um, not doing much, you know, just writing, just trying to scrape by and um, trying to win awards so that my parents would think that I was not wasting my life. I don't know, you know, I just, um, I mean, I'm glad you're at UCLA. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of great people there and at USC. Well, you went to USC, um, for your bachelor's I read. Yeah, I went for my bachelor's. Um, and then I, I like left USC, you know, and I went, I moved to Beijing for two years. Right. after. Oh, okay. Undergrad. Yeah. What was it like living in Beijing for two years? Oh, I, lo- I loved it. I feel like it, it was, it fundamentally changed the rest of my life, I think. Um, before moving to Beijing, I think I, I thought I knew something about life or how to live or how where my place was. In it. And then I went to Beijing and there was just seems like all the rules went out the window and I could do whatever I want. And um, I, I was there in 2007 to 2009. And I, um, I left like at the end of 2009. And I felt like there was just so much energy and um you know it was like right before the olympics and as somebody who spoke chinese and english i just had you know i did all sorts of work i like directed a documentary for discovery channel i did um you know fixer work for commercial um like commercial shoots like for hotels i translated for journalists and i just got to see and do like things i would never be able to do you know, had I just stayed in, in the States and worked after undergrad. So, oh, so this was part of your under, like post undergrad um, in Europe. It's a very typical thing, right? To live abroad for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very exceptional in the States though. 
I mean, I went when I first went to China. It was um, I had um, I applied for a program to do comparative literature at Peking University, and I did that for a year. Um, I would just go to uh, Peking University's uh, Chinese literature classes, and I wrote all my notes and essays in English, and then I had to translate them back into Chinese because I just couldn't think that fast in Chinese. Um, so, but it was like you know, it was a, it was a, it was difficult to write essays in Chinese because I've never done it before. And then after a year, I was like, this is not, I, I'm not going to do well in, in this master's. So I dropped it and just started working full time for journalists. So you would have a lot of empathy for our many students who write in a foreign language or in, in Mandarin and then translate into English for our yeah. essays. I think this is um, my main project as an educator and as a writer. I think that when I was studying writing in undergrad and grad school, I was so embarrassed about my grammar. I, I felt like I was always saying things incorrectly. And it would always be pointed out in class as if I was just being sloppy. But I think this is just a way, if coming from English from another language, that just changes the way you think. And I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think we're actually something adding something vital and new to English. And I, when I teach, I always try to get students to not feel embarrassed about that. Like you know, I want them to be able to tell the story in however way they want to tell it, and then we will shape it together. I think a lot of people come to your story collection um, want, are expecting at some point that story of you moving to Beijing. Like, you know, like it's a mm -hmm. typical, um, you know, when audiences come to these yes. texts looking for that kind of thing. And then yes. you like giving very different kinds of stories. They're all very, very different stylistically yes. uh, as well. Um, but can you talk a bit about that expectation? I mean, it, I don't know if you wrestled with it or if you maybe oh, you know, wrote have, about that elsewhere. I wrestled with it and I'm still thinking about it. I think I think about that all the time. I, I, I'm also, I sold the um, this collection to Sony to be uh, made into a TV show. And, you know, we, in our meetings, it's constantly... Um, you know, especially I feel like in Hollywood, they, they have the advantage of being more direct. So, so they keep telling me nobody cares about a half Chinese American experiencing things in China. Like that's not an, that's not something American audiences are interested in. Either you're American who goes to China or you're a Chinese person who comes to America. But this in between world place that you're exploring is confusing and nobody cares. No, that's what the studio executives have told me. And wow. I think, you know, writing this book, I thought this was, I think this is the way I've experienced the world. I'm, you know, I am brought up in the, Mar in the States, in California, but I'm also, I fit very well um, as soon as I'm, you know, in China. And I think growing up, I've always moved back and forth. Like I've spent my summers in Beijing and um, in Changchun ever since I was seven. And I think, like my like many uh, people reading the book, there's a you know like what you said about your upbringing, or your life experience. Like we're global citizens. You don't have to be. You don't have to feel like this has to be Asian American and this has to be stranger in a strange land, like an American going back to China to talk about how weird the food is. So I I purposely try not to do that in this collection. Um, I try to tell these stories in the way that I've experienced or the way that I think people experience this world. 
And I mean, for in terms of every story being different stylistically and thematically, that was a choice. Um, I think a lot of short story collections usually um, can feel like a you know connected stories, but to me, um, I knew that how hard it is to get a short story collection to be published. So I thought this might be my only chance, and I really wanted to flex all the muscles that I knew. I wanted to have completely different voices from story to story. I mean, I have to say, you you show those muscles very well. It's, <laughs> I didn't think it was a muscular collection, but now I'm <laughs> going to think of it that way. Um, but I mean, in some ways it is in, in the sense that this style can be very, like, um, very different than, um, I, than a kind of reflective, um, you know, first person style that we often expect, um, even yeah. in, in ethnic literature, right? This is like very sporadic sometimes. It's very, yeah. um, it wanders and it's very fast in some sp- spaces uh, and very atmospheric, right? It's almost cinematic in some ways. I could almost see like different kind of cinematography going on in, in like yeah. each, in, yeah. in each story. And because they're all about such different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrestled with this as well um, for my mm-hmm. first um, my first novel, yes, which is kind of a short story collection about travelers in 2007 and 2008 yes. from North America who wander around Asia and, um, you know, are stupid. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. Um, and it was, it, it, I felt such kinship with your book because my first trip to Beijing was also mm-hmm. in 2007, mm. uh, right before the Olympics. And just yes. remembering, like, I've never, again, since then, seen a city under such tremendous change. Yes. I think people have a habit of coming to this book and thinking it's about rich Chinese millennials. Yes. And there are definitely like one or two stories about that. <laughs> um, and I don't even know if you would call them like rich in the same way that like, you know, popular media like Crazy Rich Asians or something mm-hmm. depicts. Um, I have I have my own disagreements with that movie. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, but then you also get stories about Beijing in this period and you get mm-hmm. a lot more complexity than, um, than is often uh, attributed. And so mm-hmm. I think having those different stories really pays off um, because we see so much of like, oh, this is what we're all missing out on when we yes. focus on these one or two narratives. So can yes. you talk a bit about that? Oh, exactly. I think, um, you know, that was one of the biggest problems I had while um, giving interviews about this, about this book. I, I have a hard time describing the collection, you know, people, uh, and sometimes people want you to have a very clear, you know, it's like, this is about rich Chinese millennials. Or this is about uh, Chinese millennials uh, in in China, or you know Chinese millennials abroad, or something. And I think I wanted to give a snapshot of people at this moment. And it's it's very. I think my point of view is that I I, I come to all of these very different characters with a lot of empathy. I think um, there's been so many think pieces and so many newspaper articles written about this generation that makes Chinese millennials or even immigrants and from China seem so like they're aliens, like they can have nothing to do with us. Like their life is so um, outrageous that, you know, you don't have to even see them as humans or something. And I feel that with this collection, I wanted people, I wanted the opposite of that. I wanted you to understand, to get really truly get inside the stranger's head and feel that you're not so different. I think in a, in a different interview that I heard you t- speak mm-hmm. at, I think it was in, with Tin House, mm-hmm. um, you talked about how 
uh, you also being seen as kind of a, a foreigner or, you know, as um, somewhat like diasporic mm -hmm. um, Chinese also made us like, so you could perform kind of differently. Yes. Um, but that people also came to you and would tell you things that they might not tell their friends. Yes. Um, which is also part of my experience and my own like growth as a writer as well. But um, can you talk a bit about that? Like, so did you feel like you had um, a different kind of um, relations with a lot of the people that you knew um, living in China because you were a foreigner or seen as a foreigner, I suppose it would be a better way to, to put yeah, it. Yeah, I think I especially felt this when I, uh, I so I, I mentioned I shot a documentary about, um, you know, I feel like for two years, China had this social program, kind of like uh, Teach for America or something, where they had fresh college grads go down to these villages, um, rural villages, and act as assistants for the village chiefs. So, um, you know, because the college grads would know how to, like, make a website for the village or, you know, do anything on the computer. And the village chiefs are usually just these respected elders that... Um, you know, uh, guide the village in their everyday activities. So I, we sh when I shot this documentary, I felt like people there didn't know how to interact with me. Um, I had somebody on my crew who didn't speak Chinese, and they always treated him like he was a foreigner, like they had to perform or something for him. Um, you know, and then this the discovery also sent producers from Singapore who also, you know, came with um, you know, just the way they... Um, they spoke and the way they dressed was so obviously different that I felt that people were performing for them, but it was almost as if they would turn around and just be very, feel very comfortable with me because I had just this like, you know, uh, Dongbei accent that they immediately, you know, um, felt comfortable with. And I, from there I knew that, um, that yeah, it was something that I could certainly put on, um, which is some, uh, I, you know, in Beijing, whenever I wanted to, um, I, I heard, you know, I heard a rumor that there was a, the, you know, the most expensive apartment building was just completed. So I just went to pretend like I was like a, a American uh, uh, person that wanted to buy this apartment and they just didn't know what to do with me. And they just showed it to me, you know, this like $5 million apartment in Beijing. I thought like, I'm, I'm really curious about the world. And I, and I think, um, having this I almost felt like a spy you know like people wouldn't say things in front of other people but say it to me or other times they're trying to tell me something about their life trying to tell me something um, about how they really feel because um, I don't know I'm like you know they're trying to explain the world to me or something and I, I, I I'm glad I'm gladly to play whatever role that makes them more comfortable in telling their stories and I think those stories certainly found their ways into my stories because in the end like I'm interested in how people see the world and see themselves and when they're honest with me then I think I definitely infuse my characters with those details I'm struck at the way you just um put that that when you said they're trying to explain the world to me where yeah. it feels like the error that we're always making, um, I guess, as scholars and writers, is we often think of it like they're trying to explain their world to me, um, rather right. than you know seeing their expression or seeing our own as just you know different ways of seeing the world. Um, I, I felt that there was something crucial going on in this book and how you were giving everyone that allowance, I guess, or um, 
you weren't assuming that this was just, you know, different from your way, but this was a, a way in itself. Yes, yes. And I think this, this, um, a lot of these, the stories and, um, in this collection have the point of view of, you know, my parents' generation. And I think that is maybe where this, that particular point of view comes from, because I, you know, spent most of my young adult life translating the world, you know, translating for my parents' generation, for my, my parents, their friends, uh, are, you know, their friends' friends, just like anybody who needed, who needed, I, you know, I used to take people to, uh, to, to like Disneyland when I was a little kid, like just to, when, you know, when Chinese people came to the States and they needed a tour guide or something, I would do that. And I felt like I was always just kind of a, just a lens to see the world. I wasn't, you know, judging if you're, what you're saying is right or wrong. I was just translating it. Speaking as an educator yourself, I mean, um, if you teach your, if you were an educator <laughs> doing Asian American literature courses um, and decided to want to teach parts of your own book, mm-hmm. um, pretending that you're not you, I <laughs> suppose, right. uh, what, what advice might you give to the not you? Like, how would you, how do you think you would best um, uh, be put into conversation with some of these other uh, uh, classes and texts? That's an excellent question. I've never thought about it. I've never thought about um, teaching my own book, but I think maybe it's um, what we talked about earlier. I think there's a new way to see the Asian American, uh, Asian American literature, or you know, the diaspora of Asians um, in America. There is just there's a these are um, in the you know the characters in this book. They all speak three languages. You know, the, you know everybody has a passport, everybody, um, you know, if it can feel as comfortable um, in uh, more than one country. And I think this is maybe this is like this, this new way of being an international citizen. And that's part of being that's part of Asian American um, culture as well. And I think this is an example of that happening. Yeah, I mean, well, is it days of being mild that that one um, and works like that? would feel Same like miles strawberry years i think this yeah. is just i feel like you know a uh, um a in beijing can move to brooklyn and have just as a strange and um a strange life it's not like i think immigration is actually a theme that does um weave itself throughout the way what the cost of immigration um how it's always more than you want to give i think that's something that i have very a lot of firsthand experience with um not just in my family, but just, you know, like that I've seen. And I, I feel like that's um, the cost of immigration is throughout this, this book. And we also get the view of immigration from people who are not migrating. Yes. You know? yes. And I, I think that is really, is really um, amazing. Um, the story that takes place in Beijing, for example, um, about the, uh, the migrants there. Mm-hmm. So I guess they've migrated, but they haven't yes. really migrated from one country to another. They've migrated from the rural to the urban. Yes. But then a lot of the um, forms of gentrification and uh, the ways of that their own way of life is being taken or challenged mm-hmm. comes from immigrants and migrants, sometimes from the U.S. <laughs> so yes. you, you get a really different point. of like, I think that would go really well in an Asian American studies class because it's like, here's the view from those in the, you know, in the so-called homeland who see the migrant go and, and, 
like you said, the kind of costs or effects of mm-hmm. um, immigration, of, of being Asian American in some ways. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about that or about, you know, the the different subcultures, because you mentioned the Bei Piao and the, yeah. and uh, you also have a story about the um, Fu Ar Dai. And so do you want to talk about those subcultures, like what interested you in trying to um, giving us the the very full on kind of experience mm-hmm. of some of these, but giving it to us again in a very wild way? <laughs> I I felt like I, I wrote I wrote it. Um, I think that, you know, this is what. I, I just think that I think there's been too many articles written about these subcultures, about like Bei Piao, about uh, maybe Bei Piao not as much in the U.S., but in China it's been talked about so much. It's just it, it means um, young people who drift to Beijing to either become artists or just, you know, it's much less the way that people move to Brooklyn to, you know, serve coffee and, you know, and, uh, um, you know, just live, just hang out for a few years. Um they ha- there's the same group of, you know, it's the same phenomenon in China. And um, for Dai, you know, it's always written about this second generation um, rich or parachute kids who are in the States and, you know, with the whatever misadventures they get into. I wrote about um, involving the sea. I wrote about um, athletes um, in China, you know, professional uh, diverse they trained since they were um, since they're little kids I think I wrote all these stories from not the outsider from point of view but from you know for, from the point of view of uh, pe- people living this experience and not necessarily aware of anyone looking at them of just living their uh, living their life and t- bringing you into their world I just thought that this is important to, to me and also because I feel that um, as somebody who you know can kind of travel seamlessly between Chinese society and American society I just felt like if I don't tell these stories like they're just these people this this will be enough for nothing you know no, I mean like no one will no one will know and I I felt like it was like a it was it was, it was a kind of magic I was doing like giving, um, planting these lives into readers that would have otherwise no access to them. I mean, the book is a, a kind of beautiful blend of like the two, like, um, I don't know if you call them, you know, the, uh, the pillars of, of creative writing, which is, you know, to like write the thing that only you could write mm-hmm. and also to bear witness to the things that, that you have borne witness to. Right. And it's a, it's, it's an incredible kind of blending of those. So uh, after publishing a successful book of short stories like this, usually next in store is a novel. And you did say that you are that you have been working on a novel mm-hmm. for quite a while. So can you give us a, a preview about that? Yeah, sure. So I've been working. Um, I've been working on a novel um, basically the same time I've been working on the short story. I think um, recently I've discovered where that novel is actually about in the last three years, maybe. So I would say that I have restarted this novel and started and now um, it's close to completion my aim for the novel is that I wanted to write a love story because um, I always wonder if my generation of Chinese people can finally have a true love story that's independent of the you know the um, of politics or of history and um, the burdens of it and just have like a a real love story that's what I'm writing in this novel vague enough it's perfect Um, but thank you so much for joining us for this podcast Uh, it's been such a fantastic conversation and 
love getting to know you after reading your book. And so congratulations again on winning this award. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm here with the writer, educator, and activist Rico Villanueva Shosoko, who received his MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars and is finishing his Ed.D. from Teachers College, Columbia University. Rico has taught writing at Boston College, the Ethical Culture Fieldstone School, and the Massachusetts College of Art. He has received fellowships from the Center for Fiction, Lambda Literary, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Rico is a board member of Kundiman, a national literary organization dedicated to Asian American literature. He lives in San Francisco, where he is a grade dean at the Urban School of San Francisco. His first book of stories, The Foley Artist, was published by Gaudy Boy Press in 2019 and won honorable mention at the AAAS Book Awards in 2021. As the award committee wrote, quote, The Foley Artist provides a new treatment of queer Philippinex diasporic lives through nine memorable stories, that are unafraid of charging through the mess and scraps in order to break into the depths and diversity of what it means to be Philippinex. These innovative and interconnected stories test the boundaries of the queer and the real, reminiscent of Arzamora Lindmark's Ruling the R's and Jessica Hagedorn's Dog Eaters, and provides historical and generational depth reminiscent of Gina Apostol's Insurrecto and Mia Alvarez in the country. Peppered with insights and sprinkled with dazzle, Shosoko's The Foley Artist is a daring debut. And now to the interview. Rico, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to share your work. <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's great to be here, Chris. Could you begin by describing your book for us and how you came to write it? Sure. Um, it's a great question. And, and I wanted to say first off, um, I think I posted this on Facebook. I'm a, a little bit of a social media addict um, that this award from AAAS really means something more to me than, than other, you know, honorary, uh, honor, honorary and, and, and awards I've received. Um, I think in particular because uh, it recognizes Asian American excellence. I think about um, how long it took me to write this. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really appreciative to um, AAAS. Um, my book, Foley Artist, is a book of interconnected short stories about um, uh, the intersections of queerness and Asian Americanness and Philippinex uh, folks living in the U.S. Um, and it took me about ten years to write these stories. Um, I'm a really slow writer. Um, it took me a while to find a home for them. So um, I'm also really appreciative to um, Gaudi Boy Press and um, to um, Chico who who. Um, was willing and, and interested and has been a great ally for the book. Um, but yeah, it, it's sort of like, there's an arc, I hope, um, to these stories uh, that that really go in terms of somebody's um, racial identity development, in terms of their um, 
queer identity development that if you read them in total, I hope that 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 arc becomes clear. Oh, I'm so fascinated by this arc. <laughs> I'll ask <laughs> about it later. Sure. Um, but for now, I'm interested in what were the main inspirations for your work as an author. Um, I noticed you have a, a kind of best of, you know, a, a must-read list of endorsements in, in <laughs> American literature. Um, but how did you see your book emerging from, you know, those from Filipinx American literature or literature from the Philippines? Yeah, I, I love that question. Um, we have, uh, I can't get the Tagalog right, but it's, um, it's very much, if you do not know where you come from, it's, you do not know where you're going. And I, I love that, that saying, um, I think about folks like Jessica Hagedorn, who's always been a mentor and a guide, um, and how important dog eaters was to me, um, the visibility and the representation and that feeling when you're a young person, you know, Chris, where you see yourself um, in literature. So um, Dog Eaters, I think in the early 90s was super influential for me. Um, I love the manicness of it and the chaos and, and the way it kind of captures Manila. Um, so that was really influential. Um, and I think about people more and more, more recent contemporaries and, and friends. Um, you mentioned uh, uh some of the people who were, who were my, uh, uh, who, who blurbed my book. I think about Mia Alvar and, and Zach Lindmark. I think about my good friend, Grace. Like there've been, we have a plethora of riches right now in this moment of Philippine X writers. And I've never seen this many um, um, sort of as a group, um, as sort of a movement, um, you know, Randy Rabay and, and just, there's so many great Philippine X uh, writers right now that that I love being in the company of them <laughs> and um, seeing seeing where they you know paved the the route. So um, Jessica was really the main one. I, I think about Jose Garcia Villa. I don't know if you if you remember Jose Garcia Villa, but um, the way that in his time uh, as as a contemporary of T. S. Eliot and, and Elizabeth Bishop, uh, publishing in the New Yorker in the fifties, that I don't feel like he was recognized uh, in the modern American liter literary landscape. I feel like he was almost forgotten. And um, amongst Philippine X writers, Jose Garcia Villa is, is, is sort of um, a tender and beautiful poet. <laughs> so I, I love, I love the way he, he, he talks and thinks about his, um, his sense of self and his sense of queerness and his sense of Filipino-ness without um, hitting us over the head. Yeah, you know, it, it feels at the edges of his poetry. Absolutely, yeah. There's there seems to be more work um, emerging on him, and I yeah. feel like I I could totally see the manicness <laughs> of Jessica's <laughs> work. <laughs> yeah, in this book, um, as well as you know the the kind of just silliness of like uh, Zach Lindmark's work, and yeah, know. yeah, I love that. You know, Je Zach and um, Jessica. I mean, we're Filipinos. Whenever we're together, we just have such a good time, and the humor is so important for I think for Filipino writers. <laughs> yeah, and it's not afraid to be messy, right? I think that's yeah. really important. <laughs> yep, um, yep. It's almost like an anti kind of like typical prototypical MFA book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, oh, so I believe that you prepared a short reading of your work. Yeah, yeah. This is um, the beginning of of the last story in my collection. It's called Babies, and um, I'll just start. More incredible things had happened, Hugo thought, than a man giving birth. 
Frogs were born with six limbs. Praying mantises laid eggs and gummy lines, backtracked, and then ate them like licorice. It was the last late evening of summer, and Hugo propped his pillow up in bed, copy-editing a piece about the equinox. I want to get pregnant, Hugo said, placing his hand idly on Mitchell's head. Earlier that day, in the crowded newsroom, a freckled intern had seen a pushpin photo of him and Mitchell and remarked that they would have the most beautiful children. Mitch pushed Hugo's hand away. You're kidding, right? He placed his thin spectacles on a stack of milk crates, Hugo's idea of a night table. Reality to planet Hugo, we can barely pay our mortgage, and now you want a child? Did the serious ever laugh? Mitch slid off the bed and removed his sweatpants. His boyfriend liked to worry about the quotidian things in life, repointing the bricks of their crumbling brownstone, or toning his svelte 34-year-old body. In the world of respectable people, Mitch was a freelance nutritionist. Health, he liked to repeat to Hugo, is more noble than science. Your body is a temple. Hugo outwardly agreed, keeping to himself the knowledge that biology was fundamental to Mitch's vain world of nutrition. Science, on the other hand, was Hugo's hummus and pita bread. He lay against their headboard and smoothed the velvety nap of the blanket. It wasn't child-rearing or adoption Hugo craved. He hadn't thought that far ahead but the actual creation of human life. His and Mitch's baby. He laughed, lifting his papers and imagining a baby with Mitch's pepper gray hair and his own straw colored skin. Mitch locked in his plastic mouth guard and closed his eyes. In a minute, he was snoring. Hugo set his papers aside and watched his boyfriend sleep and then turned off his lamp. He lay motionless on his back, feeling the leafy shadows from outside shimmer on the painted walls. The room was like a giant aquarium. Slowly, the blanket floated off off him, billowing in the room of blue-black water. He too floated up from the bed, reaching his hands to his neck and touching the flaky gills beneath his chin. Light waves splashed the stucco ceiling, and a few fathoms below, Hugo could see the black silt collecting on his computer monitor and along the crevices of the wide hardwood planks. Hugo spread out his arms and kicked lightly, looking down at Mitchell in their neat bed. He exhaled an upward arching stream of bubbles. If male insects could make babies, he wondered, why couldn't he? And I think I'll pause there. It's a very memorable moment in the book. <laughs> uh, Thanks, I think Chris. It seems to be, I remember at first I was like, is this the same book? Because there's not a lot of speculative events that happened before. Yeah. But then it starts to really make sense. Um, huh. But can you talk about how that, I mean, it makes sense in terms of like as an ending, <laughs> as, a, sure. as an ending story. Yeah, but how did you come to write that? Um, what inspired it? Yeah, I love, it's such a weird story. And, it, you know, everything else in the book are, traditional realist stories. And then this story is, uh, you know, speculative, fabulist, you know, a little bit magical realist. Um, I think this is the last story I wrote <laughs> and it's at the end of the collection. And as writers, I always, uh, I don't know if you feel this, but I always feel like I'm just trying to keep myself engaged. <laughs> and I was like, I can write now a story with a beginning, middle and end. And <laughs> I want to do something new. And I was reading, um, some George Saunders, of course, at the time. Uh, I was also interested in, in Kelly Link's work. Um, and I liked how the speculative fiction they were doing was not 
it almost wasn't the focus of it. It was more about um, the humanity and the human stories. So in this story, babies, um, it's just a given that that Hugo, the main character, he gets pregnant. So he gets pregnant and, and it's not like, you know, um, uh, in vitro or it's not um, adoption. It's like Hugo gets pregnant <laughs> in this story. And what I was interested in is actually dis- the disintegration of his and Mitch's relationship, uh, which, uh, you know, it's a spoiler alert if anybody hasn't read this, but um, it's really about like a gay couple uh, in middle age that is growing apart. And I was starting to think at that time, um, you know, a little bit autobiographical, but my, in, in my own life, you know, a long-term um, uh, gay relationship was, was falling apart. And so I was actually, I was obviously interested in that and that vehicle of, of the man getting pregnant seems like something that, uh, wrong or right. Like, I, I don't even know if I believe this, but it's, it's kind of a trope that, that straight married folks have a kid to save their marriage. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen in a gay relationship, but what if it did? And so that was kind of the impetus for that story, babies. That is an excellent way of uh, <laughs> exploring that. No, that's great. Um, but let's get to the, that arc that you mentioned in the beginning. Um, Sure. Because your book is, so the book is made up of interconnected short stories about queer mm-hmm. Philippinex experiences. Um, and it felt like to me that most every character who seemed to be like a side character who's kind of there to um, influence the main character then kind of gets their own story. Mm-hmm. Um, you sp- particularly like the mother and some of the like older <laughs> folks in it. Um, how did you, I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, interconnected short story books Um Sure. Um, even in Asian American literature, but this mm-hmm. one seemed unique in that way. So how did you come to this structure? Like, how did it mm-hmm. affect? Did it come out of the themes you were trying to explore? Or did it affect them in a certain way? Um, yeah, the, and thanks for the, the great reading and the close reading, uh, Chris. I appreciate it. Um, I think about uh, you know the first things that come to mind are the actual you know, work that was influencing me when I was writing these. And, and one of my teachers in grad school was Alice Madison and, and I love her work. Uh, she had written a interconnected short story collection. It was called um, women yelling, men giving money. <laughs> it's like an amazing title. And, and so those characters um, sometimes got their own stories. Um, so I was thinking about that as, as a structure and I was like, Oh, that's interesting that Alice does that. And we talked a lot about that. Um, I also think about uh, Dale Peck's collection, which is a beautiful collection. I don't know if anyone has read it. It's called um, Martin and John. And that one was interesting to me because it's not exactly interconnected stories, but there's two characters uh, pretty much in all the stories. One's called Martin and one's called John. And they're different people, (laughs) but um, there's something, there's a quality of being with the Martins and all those stories, it's kind of like the same. And there's a quality uh, or an essence of the, the John characters and all his short stories that, that feels the same. And, and, and it feels expansive. Like when I was reading it, I, I sort of felt like I was um, learning something about uh, this character, uh, Martin, who was kind of a shapeshifter, you know, you could read it as a shapeshifter. So anyway, all these things were, were of interest to me. And after I had written a couple of stories, um, I kept getting interested in my own stories. I, I kept getting interested like in the sister. I was like, well, what does the sister think of all this gayness, right? So I wrote the sister story and I was like, as a writer, I was kind of bored. And so 
the tasks I set myself, like there's a story called Nicola and Maribel. And in that story, I was like, I need to improve how I write about women. Like as a male identifying cisgender man, I, you know, I don't know the experience and I have to grow in my empathy. So I wanted two Philippine ex-women. I wanted one who was from the Philippines um, and one who was Filipino American, who, if you looked at them from the outside or, you know, in, in a white supremacist way, you're like, oh, those two Philippine women are the same. And, and obviously, you know, we're not a monolith. So that was super interesting to me for, for Nicola and Maribel. And it seemed like a great way to echo back other stories where, where Noel is her, her brother and, and he's just coming out or sort of coming out. And so what's her take on it? but yeah, it's her story. So I loved exploring that. I felt like I also had to grow in my empathy for the mother character, the Philippine mother in my stories. And so I was like, you know, all my own mom issues, I'm not going to explore on the page, Uh, but I do want to like bring empathy and humanity and love, like the great love I have for, for Filipino women. Um, so that was a driver for some of the different characters. And, um, the way they interconnect, like there's some minor characters that, that kind of keep showing up and, and that kind of goes back to the arc of queerness for me. Um, you know, one of the first stories is really just kind of finding yourself coming out. And then in the middle, it's about the families kind of accepting or not accepting um, Noel's, the, 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 the sort of, if there's a central character, it's probably Noel, his, his queerness. And then you know, kind of a coming apart of a character. And so I, I just, I thought it was interesting to have a little bit of a puzzle um, to it. And you could not read that or you could read it. And Karen Yamashita, she did this with I Hotel. You know, like I love the puzzles of a book or like Juno Diaz did that with um, Brief brief, uh, brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, where there's so many layers. And I love that aspect. I was like, it's such an easy thing to do. Um, that let me explore that if I can revisit some of the same themes from a different character's point of view um, in the same collection. I don't know. Does that make sense, <laughs> Chris? Yeah, no, it works really well. And I think um, seeing Noel as, I mean, I think even with interconnected short stories, the reader is tempted to <laughs> try and find, you know, a main character of sorts. And that main character is usually like the similar identity of the author, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there, there's a habit of doing that. Um, but I, at first I thought the main character could have also been the mother at certain points just because mm. I thought, thought that her story was so well done and so um, intriguing. Mm. Um, so I think it was very yeah, successful, I guess, in showing that, um, that kind of um, oscillating viewpoint. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Uh, you know, when you're writing fiction and you start talking to people, um, it's, it's the Voorhees way of looking at, at, at being a writer, like you write it mm-hmm. and then you give it to the world and it's not yours anymore. And to have people close reading <laughs> something that you've been living with in your own little world, it's like so interesting. It's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And I just kind of wrote that in the middle of the night. You know, that's a throwaway line. And it has such, such meaning for folks that, that it, it makes you feel good as a writer. I love that you were talking about the other. You know, that that's the way into it is mm. if... We can talk about queerness um, of our characters through other lenses of the characters. Like, I feel like it 
it expands rather than, than contracts. Like, I don't want to tell the same old story of coming out. Like, actually, I wrote a coming out story and it's so boring. Like, <laughs> I couldn't even get to the coming outness. Like, the character in the, the beginning kind of comes out and then I move to the next story and then he's already come out. Like, it's just mentioned as a flashback, which is actually more interesting to me. Like, I, you know, I love that you were saying, you know, they're kind of evil characters. Like, isn't that more interesting than just the rote, you know, what we know about coming out? <laughs> Yeah, and well, I think with so I have a particular question about your sure. book that I couldn't sure. think of, stop thinking of when I was reading it, which is like Chad. Yeah. <laughs> There's this who seems to be the most othered of the others. Yeah, and I think he's white, right? He's a white kid. Yeah. He's definitely who, white. Yeah. Who's like? Does he have red hair? If I just yeah. imagine, he has red hair. Yeah. There were parts where I was like, is his name even Chad? Because Chad is like the per- most perfect. It's almost too perfect of a name <laughs> for him. Um, but he doesn't, uh, from what I remember, he doesn't get his own interior narration, right? He's like no. always positioned as object or something in the background. And so yeah. um, that was something I hadn't remembered seeing much in, in interconnected short stories hmm. uh, where you're just, you just have this it's almost like teasing it was teasing me like when do i get his interior narration <laughs> who is this person what's happening um and it, it, for me it really juxtaposed noel who was, seemed like the main character but can you tell us about their relationship or about what chad is doing yeah um there are intentional moves you know this is we make as writers and then there's unintentional unintended consequences i think um the intentional move was to put Chad um, as a minor character in many of the stories. I was like, okay, let me, let me have a very explicit tie interconnectedness through this character. Right. So he appears in different ways through different stories. Um, I think the unintended consequence and, and sort of like, I wanted to talk, it is, I think it is more un- unintended or subconscious on my part where um, Chad is definitely a white kid and all the ideas of, of idealizing like white bodies and, and sort of um, Noel and um, Hugo, it is Hugo. Hugo is also another different gay man, but he's, he's definitely a Filipino gay man. And I wanted to put in opposition to these gay Filipino characters, a white, gay character and, and and i didn't want to foreground him um so this is the subconscious i think part or the unintended consequences where chad's whiteness becomes a thing that is not centered <laughs> like like i didn't center the character but i i wasn't trying to decenter his whiteness if that does that make any sense <laughs> um so i, I, think, I, it, I think it does yeah okay i i think it's interesting to see him as almost like an object of desire. Like I definitely think a lot of the, like Noel has a crush on him, you know, and where he ends up in a different story that, that I really like the, the title story. He's kind of this, this character who hasn't succeeded, you know, he's like, he should have everything laid out for him as um, a white male in, in our society. Right. Even if he is um, oppressed in ways of his sexuality, his, cis white maleness um, should open doors for him. And yeah, he's working in this porn shop in West Hollywood in this, this story called Fully Artist. So yeah, just thinking about him as, as, uh, as the whiteness and as the object of desire and, and sort of, it's just kind of an, an interesting mystery to me. I'm, I'm actually teaching and reading Great Gatsby now. And I'm like, yeah, um, 
Gatsby's kind of a mystery and so is Nick. And and I'm kind of like, maybe Chad is in that vein of, of mystery for us. Mm. I mean, he almost seems like a magical kind of um, projection in some ways. And it was really fascinating because in most books, you know, they have heterosexual, heteronormative gays. They would, mm. a, a woman would usually play that role or in a, in a huh. queer book, it would be like a, a, a another, like maybe a, a, a queer Filipino would be, play that role yeah. of being yeah. <laughs> the Chad. Um, and so the, yeah. the Chad was and so... Butterfly. Yeah, yeah. And so the Chad being named Chad <laughs> ends being <laughs> the way he is. Uh, you know, it reminded me of um, that book uh, by uh, Vicente Raphael, um, White Love. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's like a kind mm-hmm. of colonial white love that is also very Filipino in some ways. Hmm. And uh, yeah, hmm. if I were to teach it, I might teach something, <laughs> teach, like th- have students think about it a bit in that way. I kept kind of envisioning ways as an educator, sure, right, of, sure. of, um, how unique that was and what to do with that. Um, I yeah. can't remember any books or novels that do it in quite the same way. Hmm. Um, Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I love that as, as a sort of to teach into, you know, lean into it. Like what does that that intentional choice of the author to uh, background him and then to sort of make him almost an invisible character? Um, what does that say? I love that. Mm-hmm. But So let's um, just branching off of that. Um, if you envision, I mean, one of the reasons where I'm hoping for this podcast is that educators listen to it and come up with ways to um, teach your books if they if they want to even just teach, you know, sections yes. of this. <laughs> yes. uh, so <laughs> how would you envision that happening with this book? Like, what suggestions might you have for educators who are interested in, in using it in their classes? Yeah, I love I love that. Um, thanks, Chris. You're you're such a great advocate, like for for our lit and and you know I feel like as an Asian American we don't we we don't do enough humble bragging or just outright bragging. So I'm like, yeah, teach this book. <laughs> you know, we should teach other Asian American books. Like, let's be our own advocates. So um, mm-hmm. I'm not shy about that, and I appreciate the plug. Um, if if I were encouraging other educators to teach this, um, I would say first off um buy the book <laughs> don't don't teach it in terms of oh there's this one story online um but i think there's a real benefit to a supporting asian american writers b um teaching a collection in full there's there's a way that you look at them as a whole that's greater than the than the parts um so please uh yeah teach the whole book i would say Stories like Deaf Mute and Nicola and Maribel are great for talking about identity. It's almost like one-on-one, uh, like uh, what is ethnic identity? You know, what are the um, exoticization that happens? Um, what's the difference between um, the diaspora? So like uh, this character, Nicola, is is very Filipino and Maribel is very Filipino-American, as I've mentioned um, but I also do think you could take you can teach intersectionality with with this um, book, and a lot of these characters who are queer and Asian might be an approach into it. I haven't really talked to you about um, what I see as a queer arc. I think there's there's an arc of queerness, um, the way that families and Asian American families grapple with um, queer sexuality. I think it, it is explored in the mom story. It's explored in um, the story Good Men where I wanted to look at this ex-girlfriend and how it affected her being at a gay wedding and, and, and sort of, um, 
you know, to be the girl that's almost left behind or, or her heterosexuality is, 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 is a part of this bigger queer narrative. So it's, I think there's different ways to talk about it. <laughs> it's excellent for myself. Besides just thinking about Chad, <laughs> I also <laughs> thought of, you know, I, I teach a Philippinex diasporic literature class. Oh, cool. And so there's always dog eaters. There's yep. Lindmark, uh, yep. rolling the R's. And I was like, what yep. would like, this would be a great after rolling the R's kind of book to have <laughs> yes <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it just it, it's so yeah it follows up very well um and like you're saying almost in a, in a way that's a bit more intersectional or um ambitious yeah, right, in that sense. Well, yeah. and i think about it, it's a nice um sort of uh literary um kind of literary canon but you know a burgeoning literary canon where you know jessica's book it was such uh i don't want to speak for you but for me it was such an important milestone like it was almost like the beginning of phil and lit and then when i read zach's rolling the arts i was like what the hell is going on like this is crazy and and it's also there's um early teenagehood it's not i guess it is teenagehood but the way that sexuality is explored in that and and, and hawaiian-ness is explored in that mm-hmm. to me feels so singular and very specific to that world and i hope that that you know my book as, um, as sort of continuing the, this tradition um, tries to expand and not, you know, we've been talking a lot about Philippine X and, and Filipino Americanness, but I hope that's not all of it, you know? So moving beyond that and, and not essentializing is important to me. Well, we've taken a lot of your time um, and we're 10 minutes over what I said we would be. So thank ah. you so much. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this podcast and congratulations again on your award. Thanks so much for your time and your, your close reading, Chris. That's it from us for this episode. Please keep us in mind as we roll out our fourth episode on the AAAS Book Award winners, which will feature the winner of the Multidisciplinary Approaches Award, Candace Chu, author of the book The Difference Aesthetics Makes, On the Humanities After Man. Thank you for listening to The Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. It is produced by the Journal of Asian American Studies with the help of the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. And it is mixed by myself, and the music featured in it is by the local Vancouver band, Necking. 